This morning is Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 5 through 9. When I ask you to stand in a minute while I read Ephesians 6, um, just like I've done for the last two weeks, I'm actually going to start by reading verses 18 to 21 of Ephesians chapter 5. That's because Paul, in this portion of the letter, is in the middle of a larger discussion. We've been saying this over and over again, but it is important for us to remember. It's a larger discussion about what a life filled by the Holy Spirit looks like. And he says in chapter 5, verse 21, that one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit being active in your life, in addition to praising and worshiping God, in addition to being filled with gratitude and thanksgiving, is that we are, as believers, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then this week, the third of the three examples where these relationships are seen, where reverence for Christ is displayed through the submission to one another. Two weeks ago, we looked at the relationship between a husband and a wife. Last week, we looked at the relationship between a parent and a child. And this week, we're going to look at the third. So if you're able, let me ask you to stand as I read this. And when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and ask you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. First, the running start. Chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. Paul writes, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, today's passage, Ephesians 6, starting at verse 5. Bondservants, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he, who is both their master and yours, is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin has a PhD from Cambridge University, and she has spent decades of her life interacting and talking with brilliant friends of hers who dismiss and reject Christianity. She is a Christian herself, and so she takes this exercise as an opportunity from the Lord to be able to listen and to be able to share Jesus. And in 2019, she published a book called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. They're questions that she faced, questions that people have brought up with her over the years. And one of the 12 questions is the one that may come immediately to mind when you read this passage. One of the questions, or one of the 12 that she addresses in this book is, doesn't the Bible condone slavery? It's a tough one. Not only because a text like this might, at first glance, seem to give at least a cover of acceptability to to slavery, but also because the so-called Christian West, and American Christianity particularly, has a fairly spotty and embarrassing track record on the issue of slavery, and often has used texts like this to support their approval of it. It's also complex because so many slaves, both in American history and in the ancient world, found this gospel of Christianity so appealing that they, in fact, even as slaves, even as slaves of people who claimed to be Christians as well, found the gospel so attractive that they themselves began to follow Jesus. 
McLaughlin tells the story of Frederick Douglass as an example, the famous abolitionist who was converted as a slave at age 13. And so the complex question is this, what is it about the gospel that makes a victim, even a victim of oppressive injustice, a system like this, a system that separated Frederick from his mother as an infant, a system where so many of its supporters claim to read and live by the same Bible? What is it about the gospel that still captivates and converts the heart and the imagination of a 13-year-old slave boy? I think we find the answer in a text like this. And this is how I want to approach it. First, first point number one, we have to talk about the issue of slavery itself, just simply because it's a block for so many people, if not for you. We have to do it head on. It's the elephant in the room, and too many people will hear nothing else if we don't have something to say about it. And even if you don't have a problem with it, it's, it's very important for you to understand how to answer those questions when they come. That's what I want to do first. Now, second, I want to look at what Paul says to the servant directly. That's verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. And then I want to look at what Paul says to the master. That's verse 9. And finally, I want us to see the great example of the master servant, the chief of all servants. So that's the outline. The issue of slavery, the servant, the master, and the master servant. Now, first, the issue of slavery. Like I said, we have to hit this head on, especially when this is presented to us by many in the world as an example of Christian oppression. And also because it's presented to us as the third example, as evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in a Christian's life. It's put right alongside marriage, right alongside parenting. So this means that some people would frame the question like this. They would say either slavery is as permanent an institution as marriage and parenting, or perhaps marriage and parenting were tolerated institutions in their time as well, but like slavery today, are equally up for modification and abolition. It seems as if they are our only two options. Slavery ought to be a permanent institution, or marriage and parenting, uh, they're, they're also up for change. But they aren't. They aren't the only options. This is what I think we can say with some certainty here. Right? I want us to see, what, what can we say about slavery? First thing we can say is that Paul is not condoning slavery by including it here as, a discuss, as part of the discussion of household relationships. You can see that by what is lacking compared to his discussions about marriage and about parenting. When Paul talks about marriage in Ephesians 5, to 33, he grounds it in creation. He goes back to the Garden of Eden. He quotes Genesis 2, and he paints this grand picture of how marriage points to Christ and his relationship with the church. Then, when he talks to parents and he talks to children in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, he grounds that in the moral law given to Moses. He goes back to the Ten Commandments. He quotes from Exodus 20. Now, by contrast, nothing here that he says affirms slavery as rooted either in creation order or as part of the divine law. It's a much more pragmatic discussion, recognizing that there is a reality that exists and instruction about how to live within that reality is necessary without condoning the institution itself. We can say that. Second thing we can say is that first century Roman slavery was not the exact same thing as slavery in 18th and 19th century America. Estimates range, but up to about 60 million people functioned as slaves in the Roman Empire. That could have approached close to half of the population. More conservatively, but still huge, probably at least a third of the population of a city like Ephesus would have been considered slaves. But interestingly, slavery 
was not race-based in the Roman world. The work they did was often looked down upon. They were certainly treated as less than equals, but there wasn't a specific racial superiority, inferiority emphasis in the Roman world, in sharp contrast to the race-based slavery that we experienced here in America. Now, tied with that same idea, slavery in the first century wasn't based on kidnapping. Now, it's true that conquered nations would sometimes find themselves enslaved to the victorious Romans, but often people sold themselves into slavery, an indentured servitude of sorts, a way out of poverty, a means of paying off debts when there was no social welfare, there's no bankruptcy courts. This is how it was handled. And it wasn't permanent. Most slaves were young, freed by the age of 30. Either they paid off their debts through their work or they earned and saved enough money to to buy their, their way out. They were allowed to do that. And often slaves could become quite wealthy in the Roman world. Now finally, there were also some rights that were given to slaves. There were slaves, there were laws associated with it. The Roman authorities actually, by the time Paul's writing this letter, letter had just recently enacted a series of reforms about how slavery was to to be handled. Now, that isn't to say that we can just simply whitewash first century Roman slavery. It could still be harsh, it could still be very cruel. Just like the conditions for a peasant farmer in medieval Europe would have been harsh and would have been cruel and in need of reform. Just like the conditions for workers in the Industrial Revolution would have been harsh and in need of reform. And Christians found themselves at the basis of both of those efforts of reform. But it was obviously different what was happening in the first century Roman world than the race-based system that we experienced here in America that was accomplished by the systematic kidnapping of Africans by privateer traders. That's the second thing. It was different than what Paul was experiencing in the Roman world, what we experienced here in America. The third thing we can say is that slavery, even this Roman slavery, was recognized early, even if not universally, as as wrong and in need of reform by, by Christian leaders. Ancient church fathers like Gregory of Nyssa and John Chrysostom condemned the process. And then closer to our own time, there were many prominent evangelical leaders that spoke out against the much darker form of slavery that took shape in America. For example, Charles Spurgeon, the famous uh, British preacher, I quote him on the front of the bulletin. Charles Spurgeon was much on a tour of America, and he denounced slavery as the foulest blot that ever stained a nation. He said, quite quite prophetically. He said that it it would be far better that north and south should be rent asunder and that the states of the union shivered into a thousand fragments than slavery should be permitted to continue. And when some pastors pushed back on Spurgeon defending slavery, calling it a peculiar institution, Spurgeon responded, he was a quote machine, Spurgeon responded and said, it is indeed a peculiar institution, just as the devil is a peculiar angel and hell is a peculiarly hot place. And many agreed with Spurgeon. Now, sadly, too few. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to reckon with that history as part of a broader church. But at the end of the day, Paul's primary purpose here in Ephesians 6 was not to speak to the legality of slavery or even the needed reforms in the the slightly different form of slavery that it took in first century Roman culture. Paul's purpose was to help Christians in the churches who were in these positions, who found themselves as bondservants, Christians who found themselves as masters. And it was this teaching that Paul lays down in the foundations of the gospel in the book of Ephesians that undercut the institution in the centuries that followed. 
The point of Ephesians is not about accepting or rejecting the institution. It is about navigating the tension that existed for a person who has been freed from the bondage of their sin, but is still subject to human authority. How do we operate in a world like that? Which is why we're able to see the relevance of a text like this for us today, because even though we live in a different world, this text applies very well to situations that we experience all the time, in situations of employment, in situations of management in today's work world. And it's not just because Roman slavery was in many ways much more like our modern notion of the employer-employee relationship, even though it, it is, but it applies to our lives as well because the gospel leads us to the same question as it led first century servants and first century masters. That same question, how do we navigate the tension between being freed from the bondage of our sin and still having to navigate in a world where we're subject to authority? So let's look at what Paul says to the servant and to the master each in turn. Now first, the servant. This is verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Now I can do a line by line or even a phrase by phrase study of these verses, and if you want to do that with me, let me know. We can grab coffee sometime later. But for summary purposes, let me summarize it like this. All right, there are things that Paul says servants must do, and they are based on what servants must know. Things that servants must do and based on what servants must know. Now first, what servants must do. What does he say? Well, he says they must obey. Same word that he used in verse 1 for children or their parents. Servants, obey your masters. Now, with a similar caveat, children are to obey parents, verse 1 it says, in the Lord. Servants are to obey their masters, verse 5, as you would Christ, which is a limitation. Obedience is not required if obedience to an earthly authority would cause you to not obey the ultimate heavenly authority. But in all other situations, obedience would be, would be required. Servants, employees may have their own ideas at times, right, about how things should be done. And they may be granted in some cases, in fact, it would be wise of the master to grant them some freedom in how they carry about their duties, particularly if they show themselves to be responsible, to raise ideas about how things can be done. But at the end of the day, and we understand these relationships well, it's the manager, it's the boss, it's the master who's the one who bears ultimate responsibility for a particular task in a work environment. He's the one, he or she, is the one who gets to set the terms of the work, what to do, when it gets done, how to do it. And the servant must submit to that out of reverence for Christ. Now, as with children, it's more than just outward obedience that Paul is talking about here. It's an inward attitude. Right? Paul says obedience should be done, verse 5, with a sincere heart. Right? That's not an outward thing, that's an inward thing. He says it should be done from the heart, verse 6, with a good will, verse 7. That means that you aren't just working for the for the boss, or if you're a student, you're not just working for your teacher, right, and you do the outside. It means that you're working for something greater. Paul actually coins a new term here. He says your, your work should be done by the way, uh, not by the way of eye service. Most people think Paul made up that word that was translated eye service. It means that there's a respect for the master that is shown simply for the position of uh, their, their position and their role. Not because anyone else is, is looking, but because you serve a higher authority. You don't do it out of eye service. You do it because it's the right thing to do, because it is the position of authority that has been put in front of you. And show you, so you show respect to the position. There's a, 
there's a moving ritual in the graduation ceremony at the United States Military Academy at West Point. A retired pastor um, from a church that was near where we used to, to live described the scene when his son graduated from West Point years ago. It's a pivotal moment in the commissioning ceremony when the cadets officially receive their officer rank of second lieutenant. And as this happens, a master sergeant, which is one of the highest enlisted rankings, marches along the line of cadets. Cadets that, incidentally, he has been screaming at for years in his role of preparing them for leadership. Cadets over which he, just the day before, had almost absolute authority. Cadets who, unlike him, are not combat-decorated Special Forces veterans, but cadets who just moments later will be his superior officers. And the master sergeant walks the line and stops in front of each cadet, just inches from his or her face. A place, just inches from his or her face, that he has likely been many times before, screaming commands and orders and obscenities. But this time, the master sergeant lifts his hand in a crisp salute and gives his final order to the cadet. And he says, lead the way. And the cadet responds with his first order as an officer, follow me. That's what the servant is to do. Obedience with respect because of the position. Now, second, to do that, for a servant to obey that way, to do what Paul commands them to do, this is what they must know. This is verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or is free. Here's the eternal perspective. This is what provides the motivation. Faithful service here on earth is recognized by an even greater boss, even if the boss here on earth doesn't appreciate it. This is the hope that provides the motivation for the present, even when the present is less than pleasant. Many slaves throughout history couldn't have conceived of earthly rewards for their labor. But as a follower of Jesus, they had an eternal reward that could never be taken away. That's what Paul's saying to them. And this radically levels the eternal hierarchy. Our work is valued regardless of our status, whether it's servant labor or managerial leadership. Now, here's the interesting thing. When someone serves like that, when they respect their master like that, when they show uh, obedience and submission to authority like that, the world looks on and oftentimes finds it very puzzling, very attractive, and a witness to the gospel. Now, sadly, <clears throat> um, the 2022 baseball season ended last night, one, two, one day too early, I'm afraid. Um, but permit me one last, before the season ends officially, one last baseball illustration. Uh, this one from nine years ago, Adam Wainwright, still pitching pretty well for the Cardinals, by the way, uh, had been pulled from a game in June of 2013. He was the pitcher. Took him out. It was a close game. And his manager, Cardinals catcher, former Cardinals catcher Mike Matheny, who was now the manager, decided that Wainwright was done, that it was uh, time to bring in a new pitcher, a reliever. Turns out it may have been the wrong call. Cardinals went on to lose 2-1. And Wainwright, who didn't want to come out and disagreed with his manager's decision, made that disagreement very clear in his post-game comments to the press. Was very unhappy and voiced it very loudly to the press. 
But interestingly enough, that night, Wainwright couldn't sleep. Tossing, turning, he said, almost sick to his stomach. And so he did, very early the next morning, called one of the lead beat writers in St. Louis who follows the Cardinals, and he told the reporter that he had blown it. Now, he, hadn't blown, he wasn't talking about the game, although he did admit that he could have pitched better, maybe earned the right to stay in. But he didn't apologize for that, and he didn't apologize for wanting to compete, to wanting to stay in. But he did apologize, he said, for his public criticism of his manager. He said that it was his Christian faith. This is what he told the secular reporter. He says, my Christian faith, it gives me the ability to admit when I'm wrong and to ask for forgiveness. And then he explained the rationale. He said, look, he said, a principle I live by is submitting to an authority figure. Mike, the- Mike Matheny is my boss, and I let him down. I'll never do anything like that again. Now, Matheny is a professing Christian as well. I'm sure he accepted Wainwright's apology, but it was the reporter's reaction that I found most interesting. In the article that, it w- that he wrote, it was almost like, huh? Who does this? He didn't think the apology was necessary. He actually found it kind of silly. But interestingly enough, even in the silliness, He said, if anything, it made him admire Wainwright more. That's what Paul says to the servant. Now, the master, on to the master. Verse 9, masters do the same thing and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is in heaven is both their master and yours. Uh, Yes, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, like with the servants, there's something to do and there's something to know. For the master, there's something to do, right? In a a sense, it's the same, like it says. Same as with the same level of respect, the same level of dignity to the servant in their role as servant, that a master would expect to be shown to him as the master. You should show in the same way, respect and dignity, as they would respect you and show dignity to you in your role. You show it to, to them. But there is a specific command as well. Paul says, stop your threatening. Now, it's not a command to stop leading. It's not even a command to stop imposing consequences or, 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 or discipline for poor perform- performance in an appropriate way. But like with Christian parents who struggle, like we talked about last week, with provoking justifiable anger in their children, so too there are and will be Christian masters, Christian managers who struggle with behaving improperly toward a servant who is still equal in dignity and equal in worth, even if under his or her authority. Now, what that meant is that very clearly manipulating, demeaning, abusing, or terrifying someone who works for you is out of bounds, which is pretty radical for the Apostle Paul to say. Because in the Roman world, reforms or no reforms, no such restriction on how to treat a servant would have been understood that way. Even in good situations where servants were well-treated and cared for, there was certainly no understood requirement that it be that way. This would have been very countercultural for a master to view his servant in this way. Now, what's the motivation? Well, just like with the servant, there is something to do for the master, there is also something to know. And in this case, it also relates to a higher authority. The earthly master is told that he has a master too. He has a greater master. And the lesser master will have to answer to the greater master in the same way that the servant will have to answer to the greater master. Now again, just like when Paul was talking to the the servant. This doesn't eliminate positions of authority, but it does have a way of leveling the playing field with respect to masters and servants, because both are answerable to the same God and Lord. And there is, it says, no partiality with Him. God will judge 
all of us with equal fairness. Now that too, when masters treat their servants that way, that too can be a powerful witness. There's a story that I've heard Tim Keller, the retired New York City pastor, I've heard him tell it several times. And it's actually, in the different versions of the story, it's actually taken different forms. The players in the story worked in different industries with different companies and different versions of how I've heard him tell it. Probably because it happened early in the early days of, of Redeemer, the church that he planted in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, so the details were fuzzy. But I trust that it actually happened. The story goes like this. While the church was still small, Tim was able to, to greet all the visitors that came after the service each week. And one Sunday, there was a woman who was a first-time visitor, and Tim asked her how she, how she heard about Redeemer. And she said that she worked for a big company in her industry, and while working there, she had made a big mistake a job-ending mistake. Not an illegal mistake, but one that got most people fired pretty quickly. But she didn't get fired because her boss told the people higher up that the mistake was his responsibility. And because he had a longer tenure at the company and greater statue, his reputation took a hit, but it didn't cost him his job. And this woman, not at all accustomed to behavior like this in cutthroat Manhattan, asked her boss why he would do such a thing like that. And he dismissed it at first. He said, oh, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. You're welcome. And she insisted. She kept pushing. And she said, well, he said, well, if you must know, I'm a Christian. And I once had someone forgive me of something far, far greater than this. And she said, please tell me where you go to church. Now, the results aren't always that dramatic. But that's the line that connects the servant and the master in Ephesians chapter 6 to the master-servant. Because as lowly a role as the servant of first-century Rome may have occupied, Jesus, though clearly demonstrating his authority and lordship, was very explicit about the role that he came to play in this great human drama. In another letter that Paul wrote, this one of the Philippians, Paul talk, he talks about it. He wrote that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. But it wasn't just Paul, Paul talking about Jesus. Jesus himself made it very clear talking about himself because he said, Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said it too, but he didn't just talk. John 13, we read about the night, the last night that Jesus had with his disciples, the meal that he ate, the meal that we're going to commemorate in just a second, when Jesus took a towel, tied it around his waist, and washed the feet of each of his disciples. The job of a low-level household slave. And it would only be hours later that Jesus would be hanging on the cross, his blood on the ground rather than water in a basin, providing for the washing away of our sins. And then three days later he rose triumphant, having submitted himself to the pain of death, but emerging not as death's slave, but as death's, as death's master. That's the great mystery of the gospel. The master becomes the servant so that he can return triumphantly to the role of master, glorified for his service. And so we all can enjoy the privilege of submitting ourselves to him as his loved servants. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for serving us and giving your life as a ransom. And as we come to your table, Lord, allow us to celebrate that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.